Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Good to be here. How are you doing? I am uh, great. I am pretty excited to sample the beverage that you selected for us this week. <laughs> um, As am I. Want to tell, tell our audience uh, what we're drinking and why? Yeah, okay. Uh, we are having the new Michelob Ultra Organic Seltzer. Um, which was advertised during the Super Bowl on Sunday. And I was very excited to see this. I'm a big fan of Michelob Ultra. It's my favorite light beer. Also a big fan of the new hard seltzers that became a big thing back in, I don't know, when was that, 2019? Was that the summer of Truly and White Claw? <laughs> the summer of the White Claw, yeah. I, uh, I do like to... <laughs> I saw a commercial recently where a guy comes up to the counter and puts Michelob Ultra and he in the bodega attendant says, You know that Miller is only Miller Light's only one more calorie, right? <laughs> Which is a little bit how I feel. Um But I it, mostly I just like to give you crap for yeah. liking bad alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um but I really Michelob is something that's close to my heart. I when I was a kid, my uh, dad and our neighbor would drink Michelob Ultras. That that's why it's close to my heart. How are you making fun of me? My dad drank it and that's why it's my I have a bias for Look, it. I am I've no short of <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm willing to set aside my principles to to, okay. to make fun of you. Okay, well now I have to know what what flavor you picked out because there are so three. I, I've got spicy pineapple. Oh, okay. I've got peach pear, which is an interesting combination. There's also a cucumber lime is the other one. So all right, this isn't a me... commercial for. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's this just try this. Is brought <laughs> to you by. <laughs> no. It's... All right. Well, all cheers. Right, cheers. Oh wow! Yeah, that's great. It's not bad. Yeah. You know how I drink those like liters of flavored water and you make fun of me for that too? Yep. Yeah. The, that's what this tastes like. Yeah. The, <laughs> With the a little bit of a... It says 4%, but it yeah. doesn't really... Yeah. Can't really tell. All right. Who are we talking to this week? Ashley McKinless. We are talking to Caitlin Flanagan. She's an American writer and social critic and has been a longtime contributor to The Atlantic. And a couple weeks ago, we, in honor of the March for Life, we re-aired our conversation with Destiny Herndon De La Rosa, the founder of New Wave Feminists. Uh, And this week, we wanted to give a different perspective on the abortion debate. Yeah. In 2019, Caitlin wrote an article in The Atlantic um, titled The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate and Why We Need to Face the Best Arguments from the Other Side. And that article describes... um, the pre-Roe v. Wade world of illegal abortions um, and how women really suffered and, and and died from unsafe conditions under that, but also um, grapples with the once you've seen the picture a picture of a developing baby, it's really hard to deny its humanity. And Caitlin is someone who has grappled with both sides of the argument, um, but ultimately comes down on supporting access to abortion. Right. And listeners of this show no doubt know the church teaching on abortion, that life begins at conception and abortion is a grave moral evil at any time during a pregnancy, um, which is something the host of this show also believe. But the reality is that there are many Catholics who share Caitlin's views on abortions um, that are uh, complicated and um, and ignoring them and or screaming at them clearly has not really changed the debate and, or it shaped the debate, but it really hasn't changed the reality on the ground. No, and most because 
it's such a contentious and uncomfortable issue to talk about. Most of the time we just shy away from it or it spills into something um, really terrible. Um, I, I'm sure lots of people have had the experience of getting in a conversation they wish they had not engaged in. Um, but and, and so we wanted to model what was a good faith conversation about one of the hardest issues that's out there to talk about. Um, and hopefully uh, show what a more honest debate and conversation about abortion would look like. But first, we wanted to take a moment and let you know about one of our sponsors this week, the Great Courses Plus. Yes. So, Zach, did you notice that uh, quote from St. Augustine that was in Joe Biden's inaugural address? I definitely noticed it. um, And it quickly reminded me that I still haven't read uh, The City of God, which... You cannot be blamed for that. It is a very, very long book. More of a tome than a book, I would it's, say. Yeah, it's huge. Um, and I've all, it's always been on my checklist to get through. Um, and I was so psyched to find out that The Great Courses Plus had an entire course on the city of God. Yes. So they have a series called Books That Matter, and they have one on the city of God that features Professor Charles Matthews of the University of Virginia, who I actually had for a Christian ethics course, so I can attest that he is a great lecturer. I'm already a few courses in on the city of God. Um, and it feels, you know, still super relevant. You know, <laughs> this book was inspired by the the sack of Rome and, and St. Augustine uh, uh, grappling with how Christians can fit into the political order. So, yeah. And, you know, one of the great things, as we mentioned, the City of God is a giant book and can feel very daunting. But one of the great things about the Great Courses Plus is that you can stream the lectures from Professor Matthews anywhere on any device um and really at your own pace right this isn't you don't you're you're not in school you don't need to there's no homework there's just 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 learning about this cool new book so you can check out the city of god and thousands of other courses available um our listeners are getting a free month when they sign up all they have to do is visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash jesuitical to get access to the city of god and thousands of other courses That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash jesuitical. All right. Now it's Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes from the Vatican, where Pope Francis named Natalie Beckhart, a French Xavier missionary sister, as an undersecretary of the Synod of Bishops. So the reason this is big news is she's not only the first woman undersecretary at a major Vatican office, but she will be the first woman with the right to vote at the upcoming meeting of uh, the Synod of Bishops. Right. This is a a big deal. There was a growing chorus of voices. um, (laughs) I mean, there's been a growing chorus of voices calling for more women to be involved in the church for a while, but specifically... um, for more representation, real representation at the Synod since 2015. Up until 2015, Synod on the Family, only ordained men and and mostly only bishops had the right to vote at Synods. Um, But at that 2015 Synod, the Union of Superiors General elected a brother, so someone who is not ordained, as their representative, and he was given voting privileges. And so um, people were kind of like, okay, so if the rule is people don't have to be ordained to vote. Um, Why don't we have any uh, women voting? Right. And so since then, we have had two other synods, uh, the Synod on Youth and then the Synod on the Amazon, where still there was no no women with the right to vote in the Synod. Um, And so this question, you know, kept kept bubbling up. So it took a couple, six years, exactly. uh, But the answer's seems to be yeah why not um so <laughs> with with his announcement on february 6th uh, uh giving sister natalie beckhart this role um people are asking like does this open the door to other women uh having that level of participation at future synods and cardinal mario gretch who's the secretary general of the synod of bishops said that her Appointment does mean a door has been opened um, and we can see what other steps could be taken in the future. Right. Um, A more obvious one is, you know, more women (laughs) being given voting positions. Uh, We don't need to, I guess, speculate as to what else could we do. Um, But it really is a big deal. And, you know, at the conference, Sister Beckert said that the appointment was a brave signal and a prophetic decision by Pope Francis, who has repeatedly called for more women in church governance. And so this is a first step. um, And so we'll be keeping an eye on this story and how it develops. But if you're itching for more information and analysis on how this historic decision got made, you're definitely going to want to listen to this week's episode of Inside the Vatican because Jerry and Colleen uh, 
get into it quite a bit. Yes. Uh, What's our next story, Zach? So Abby Johnson, who is a former Planned Parenthood employee who is now a prominent pro-life activist and speaker, spoke at a virtual event this week at the Catholic University of America, um, but it did not come without a lot of protest uh, from people, uh, students, alumni, outside observers, etc. Right. So Abby Johnson is uh, also a very vocal supporter of President Trump uh, and has gotten into hot water in the past for her controversial statements about race, refugees and Pope Francis. Yes. Um, in the wake of the death of George Floyd, Abby Johnson, who is a mother of eight, said that she thought the police would be, quote, smart if they ever profiled her biracial adopted son, since, quote, statistically, my brown son is more likely to commit a violent offense over my white sons. Yeah. So that's just kind of horrifying. And the Pope Francis thing, she also, what was her her comment about him? She has questioned whether um, the Pope has re- really read the Bible um, and mm. under in his advocacy of the poor, um, and and really criticized the Vatican's uh, robust, you know, pushing for people to accept refugees into their countries. Um, so these things were, you know, very not just controversial. They were against church teaching, which was something that the the protesters used to try and get this talk canceled at Catholic University of America. Right. So Johnson was scheduled to speak at an event sponsored by the students uh, pro-life group there, the Cardinals for Life. But after protests, um, it was uh, taken over by the campus's college Republican group. Um, So the event did go forward on Tuesday night of this week, um, despite the pressure, Um, though the president of the pro-life group did resign, saying that she had been pressured against her conscience to cancel the event. Yeah. And those who objected to her speaking pointed out that the university has not really been consistent in what speakers are canceled um, for, for what reasons. You know, for ex- one example, in 2014, uh, there was a screening of Milk, a documentary about San Francisco's oh, or California's first openly gay public official who was then later assassinated in 1978. Um, that was canceled because after it was approved because it was unclear what they were advocating for or uh, teaching about, according to university officials, um, it, which people saw as sort of a, a misuse of church teaching at the time. And people have really pointed out the inconsistency on what what gets emphasized when and where um, here. And we, we, we're not just bringing the story because it's about a speaker getting canceled at a college, but it, it's really, I think, indicative of where the pro-life movement is at right now and some of the debates that are going to be shaped going forward. Right. So so in the episode that we re-aired back on the March for Life, I in the introduction, I raised the point of like, you know, where does the where does the pro-life movement go now that Trump is not in office? Um, and I think there is a hope among some that like, OK, Trump's gone. He no longer is the face of this movement. Uh, we can wipe our hands of that. But I don't know. This event suggests that that's maybe not the case. Abby Johnson was someone who was at the rally on January 6th before the storming of the Capitol and has um, thrown into question the results of the election. Uh, So there still seems to be very much this uh, uh, integration between the Trump movement and the pro-life movement, which um, I think is what a lot of people were reacting to when they when they tried to get this event canceled. Absolutely. And it's uh, a great segue into our conversation with our guest this week. So stick around. Our conversation with Caitlin Flanagan on how to have an honest abortion debate is right up next. us from Los Angeles is Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of books including Girlland and To Hell With All That. Welcome to Jesuitical, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I've been a big fan of your, your writing for a long time, so it's great to 
great to talk to you. Um, we, you know, we were bringing you on during the week for the March for Life, so we do want to get into topics around there. But I wanted to start kind of with a little bit of your background. Um, I knew you were Catholic, but I hadn't heard your uh, conversion story until I heard you on Andrew Sullivan's podcast recently, and I thought oh, yeah. it was a, a great story. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to the Catholic faith? Well, you know, my father, obviously, Thomas Flanagan, very, um, his roots were in Irish Catholicism. Certainly, his mother and grandmother who raised him were very hysterically Irish Catholic, Irish American Catholic. But he was an atheist, completely an atheist. He didn't believe, from about the age of 10 or 11, he didn't believe what he was being told. And he went to Columbia and got his PhD in um, in English with Lionel Trilling and with all those guys who were the great sort of New York intellectuals, the generation before he was. And then for all of these complicated reasons, I got taken out of uh, public school and put into a local Berkeley Catholic school. And my parents just assumed that I was fully inoculated against any mumbo jumbo <laughs> and that I could just, you know, go there and, and get like a meat and potatoes education without some of the problems that were going on in the early 70s in the public schools. But the opposite took place where I was bored out of my mind. I spent the whole three years I was there with a book always behind whatever book I was supposed to be studying. And there was a religion class that was just useless to me. It was like coming in at the middle of a movie. They're like, Pharisees, <laughs> Romans. I'm like, like, what are you guys talking about? Centurions, you know? And there was never, as I say, like they would have been learning all these things since kindergarten. And I was like, can someone like get me <laughs> a basic primer? Like, where are we historically? But the religion room had um, these large posters, each one for a different one of the Beatitudes. And I would sit there, just bored out of my mind, and I would just sort of really study each one without, it was like a meditation, but I hadn't planned on it being a meditation. But they began to soak into me in a very deep way. And I just slowly started to drift. And I very much liked the kind of sensual experience of Catholicism. I loved the incense. I love the stained glass. I love when there's that certain time of year where they have the miter and they kind of sprinkle the holy water on you. I just love all of that. And I love the lives of the saints. And So like all the things that you were able to look at while you were bored by what your teacher was saying in Catholic school. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yes. Got it. You can get a worse and, uh, primer than the Beatitudes. <laughs> I think so. I think so. If you have to just cut to the chase, that was it. <laughs> so you're in school, and then when do you finally convert? Oh, convert? Well, okay, that's an interesting story. So uh, my father was a professor at Berkeley, and he was at, his field was Irish history. And the semester, the first semester that I was in fifth grade, my we were still in Ireland, and my mother was determined to get me out of the public school when we returned to the states. And she, not being at all Catholic, she had a misunderstanding that you had to be a baptized Catholic to go to Catholic school. And so these very nice people in a church in Dublin helped me and my sister to kind of whiz through the <laughs> basics, and then we had a very nice baptism. But neither of us were believers at all, and uh, and sort of a party afterwards. So I was at least, I don't think I had to convert at any point in terms of a baptism. So it was all kind of a very inside job when I kind of moved over to a, a state of belief as opposed to non-belief. Well, I think it definitely, your Catholicism comes out in a lot of your writing. I wonder if we could pivot a little bit to an essay you wrote in the Atlantic last year on abortion and the sort of the dishonesty around the debates that we we have from both sides. Um, you, you start out this with talking about um, the stories that your mother told you, sort of uh, being a nurse in a, a, a world before Roe v. Wade. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit for our listeners you know, what your mom told you and what impression that left on you. Yeah, well, the context for the whole piece was that all my life, I've thought the best argument of both sides is an excellent argument. You know, what people who are against abortion say, 
they look at sonograms, they look at images of a developing fetus. They can clearly see that it's human that's developing in there. It's not a, another species or it's not unrecognizably human. And that there's an act of violence to uh, destroy that, that life, that fetus, to remove it before it's had a chance to be born. But countervailing that was my mother was a young nurse in New York City in the 50s when there was, let alone, no legal abortion. There wasn't the pill yet. And young women, girls would get pregnant. And the consequences, I mean, this is one of the generational things that's different. At that time, the consequence of being pregnant out of marriage was that the rest of your life could be seriously derailed. You wouldn't be somebody that anybody would want to marry and all of that. And maybe they couldn't even tell anyone used to be you would tell your parents and they'd send you off to a mother's and baby's home in the States and you'd give birth there and then you could come back and step right back into high school. But there were just times when there was no other option. And twice my mother sat in Bellevue Hospital with girls as they died from abortions and bad abortions. Abortion is the kind of procedure that it's a very easy procedure to get right in a medical context with someone who knows what they're doing. And it's a very easy procedure to get terribly wrong if you're not in that context. And the obvious deadly thing is sepsis, deep infection. And what would happen is that, you know, young women would try to treat it at home. They'd try to take aspirin. They'd try to do whatever they could to treat the sepsis because they don't want to come in and confess that they've committed a crime by having an abortion. And oftentimes by the time they showed up, it was just too late and they died. I do think that's something the someone who's been involved in the pro-life movement, something that that side can take for granted, I think. it's There's often moves to dismiss the, the impact, I think, of uh, what a pre-row world was like on women. Uh, you have this sort of gutting line in the essay that to be a woman is to bear the entire consequence of sex. And that was absolutely true then. And in still ways is very true. Um, what, so what do you think it is that maybe the pro-choice side doesn't understand about people who are pro-life? So, you know, they, they've got this idea, this conviction, um, this concern for women in their lives, what do they not necessarily understand about the other side? Well, it would be unbearable for them to be pro-choice and really look into what that means in terms of the developing fetus. And there's kind of a, a denial of it. People will kind of almost cackle in a very grotesque way that they just don't care about that at all. Um, and I think that's a protective mechanism. There's no way that we can look at those images and not see that something morally wrong is taking place. Um, my feeling, being pro-choice, is that the greater moral wrong is when we would lose the mother and the child because abortion isn't a new thing. You know, it didn't happen in sort of the, you know, post-war America. It's as old as womankind is. There have just been times when women just, for whatever reason, personal, familial, safety-wise, cannot bear to have that child, or it's not safe for her to have that child. And women have always attempted to, uh, to do something about it and to end the pregnancy. And the whole notion that our founding fathers, you know, they, they might be appalled that that Roe v. Way was found on the right to privacy. That might, they might say that's not what we meant by that. They wouldn't be. I don't think very surprised about the idea of women becoming pregnant and then not being pregnant anymore. I think that the whole kind of that whole world of midwifery that existed before hospital births, um, there was just a whole area there where there were options and things for women to do, and it was a very desperate situation that women would be in to to fall to this recourse because it would be painful and harrowing. So your article is titled The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate. So I feel like in this conversation, we what we really want is to be honest. And so you've you know, said you consider yourself pro-choice. Uh, I would 
consider myself pro-life. Um, and I think a lot gets lost when we just use these labels. Um, so I'm wondering, like, when you when you say that, what does it mean to you? How does it sit with you? Um, how do you grapple with what it means, whether as as you know, as a Catholic or as a citizen? My my feeling isn't isn't if sh- about it isn't shaped by Catholicism at all. Um, but my feeling is that I'm not settled in feeling great about it. I don't feel great about abortion at all. Um, not at all. But on the other hand, I think the honest of the honesty of the abortion debate would be for people who are pro-choice to say, yes, I see what you're talking about. I see that, you know, certainly past the first 12 weeks that that fetus is rapidly looking like a baby and no two, uh, two ways about it. And as, and as sad and grave as it is, I still, um, I, I still think that, uh, for various reasons that I remain pro-choice. And I think that the pro-life side would have to say, we recognize that to take this out of the context of this ancient procedure, to take it out of the context of hospitals and doctors, that we're going to have a lot of women seriously risk their lives. We're going to have them preyed upon by the, the notion of a back alley abortionist is a very dark and terrible thing. There was a lot of sexual abuse that came with that because the girls couldn't say anything. And we're willing for women to to be desperate and to die in a very butchery kind of a way. So that on either side, um, we don't want to be honest. It's painful to be honest. It's painful to look at a sonogram and think, I'm supporting that. It's painful to think, if I can get this law changed within the first year, girls and young women are going to die in terrible ways. It's very painful for both sides to, to look at it. And I don't think there are, there's a handful of people that in my experience who are really able to hold both of these truths in their mind at the same time. Yeah. You say you write in the piece, like you were just saying, this is not an argument anyone is going to win. The loudest advocates on both sides are terrible representatives for their cause. Um, Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, well, um, when the pro-choice side, I just remember there was, there has been a TV show on, I think maybe it's on Netflix, it's called Shrill, and it's an adaptation of a feminist book, but um, Lindy West wrote it. And anyways, the character in it, the young woman, and she's kind of like a young woman in Seattle or somewhere and she gets this horrible boyfriend that she throws herself at and he's really horrible to her and she asks him when they have sex to use a condom and he refuses and she goes ahead and continually has sex with him and then the next episode she's just blithely walking into a Planned Parenthood there's no discussion there's no sense that there's anything at all to be considered morally about this choice and it's clear that the maker of the episode, the writers, um, producers, really wanted to show a scene of a young woman getting an abortion for reasons that were totally her own and that are not laden with any moral repercussions whatsoever. And I thought, wow, that's really vile. That's really vile. And it goes beyond that now. There's, you know, the whole like shout your abortion mm-hmm. movement kind of thing that mm-hmm. it's not even is there nothing to be like nothing to talk about there's mm-hmm. in fact uh, you need to exhibit you need to like say it out loud and show up seems like a degree of pride that's very unseemly yes um, <laughs> although i also think about the fact that a lot of times i'll want them to be that side to be more seemly if that's a word <laughs> but then i think you know is it really that much of a difference to the developing fetus whether or not the mother was yeah. shouting the abortion or being very heartbroken about the abortion, you know? So the, yeah. the material fact remains. And I feel like there's kind of like an opposite thing that goes the other way where it's like, if you're pro-life, you'll be accused of not being outraged enough. Like, okay, if you really believe there are a million babies being killed every year, then why, are you, why aren't you in like revolt? Right, <laughs> like, right. Right. There was that idea in the 80s when there started to be killings at abortion clinics mm-hmm. that, um, and, and we were all rightly horrified, but some people said, well, to this way of looking at it, to the 
the men who committed these awful crimes, they saw these as places where murders were taking place. And it's not entirely irrational to, to look at it from that context. And, you know, a lot of the pro-choice argument that I've launched here on the podcast is a little bit nullified or changed in that today there's no stigma at all against being an unmarried woman who's pregnant. So that that real urgency to get an abortion that occurred in an, in an earlier time does not exist. And we probably at this point, because we have so many providers, so many women doctors, that I think there would be a system where safe abortion would take place within an illegal context. But as always, getting back to the Beatitudes, the 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 weight of this is going to fall on the poor, you know, the poor woman who's young, a teenager, her parent, her father will beat her up if he finds out what's happened. You know, she's not going to be the one who's going to be able to find that provider who will get it done. She's going to be the one who's going to be drinking a poison or, or inserting something into the uterus. It's going to fall heavily on her. And I, I, I can't stand that idea either. Both sides have a really strong, strong case to make. And I wish I were more reconciled in my beliefs. I guess where I kind of, I never have had had an abortion when I was young, thank goodness. Um, but I've known many young women who have and who were young and now are my age. Um, and I just think to myself, yeah, their lives were able to unfold in a way and to carry on and to get their education and to get married and and to have their family life and not have everything sort of derailed at a young age because of this consequence of sexuality. So you know, I can't say that I that I think there was anything wrong in those decisions, but I will say it's it's Anybody who says they can sleep easily on an, about this concept, they're not thinking about it. Pro or pro or con, they're not really thinking about it. Yeah. When you say that, something that I think a lot about is, um, I don't know, one thing that handicaps the pro-life side is that we can't, <laughs> we can't show the counterfactual to the story you just told of like, you know, because they had an abortion, their lives unfolded in this really beautiful way. Um, and the pro-life side would be like, yeah, there was another life that we, we could have seen right. even more, right. even more life, even some, something even more beautiful than we can imagine. Um, Definitely. And so. Definitely. <laughs> and I have known people, I was working with a woman 23 years ago uh, she was a, she was in a homeless shelter, transitional shelter for women and children, but she was just down on her luck right in that po- point. She was a very together, smart person. And she had a six-year-old little girl and then a little boy. They were adorable kids. And I could tell she really loved that little boy. He was full of piss and vinegar. And we were just chatting. We were in her room because the kids and the moms in this shelter stayed in the same rooms. They each had a room to themselves and then common kitchen and so forth. And we were kind of playing with the kids or I was playing with the little boy. And then she looked at him and she said, you know, I was supposed to have had an abortion. And I was like, what? And she said, yeah, you know, I got the ticket or whatever to get an abortion that would be paid for. But I showed up at the clinic and they told me I had the wrong date. And so they gave me another date, like a week or something later. And at that point, it was just too complicated. She had something else to do and she had the child. And so I'm looking there at this little boy that I've gotten to know so well over the course of working with his mom and with him and with his sister. And I thought, what would the world be like without this child? He's so, he's just in my heart right now. I love this kid. And his, it was such a cavalier coin toss about his being here. Another thing I get a little concerned about is sometimes at a church, you'll hear a priest or somebody really speaking against abortion. And you'll know, I will know as a woman, what he probably doesn't know, is that in that large church, there's probably a lot of women who have had abortions. 
and they are go and they're happily married women now. And you've brought them to such a point of shame and a, a sense of horror within themselves that that can that can go nowhere. What's what's done has been done. Caitlin, I I have a question for you. Um, I think that something one of the things that the pro life movement really isn't going to concede on is some type of legal protection for the unborn. Um, you know, I, I, I think some people here almost like the, you know, we all want it to happen as early as possible. We could all agree on that. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, there's a lot of people who say, well, well why, <laughs> you know, does, right. does that, yeah. does that life have more or less value? And we could say mm-hmm. it's more or less tragic, but in other circumstances, we think the sooner someone passes, the more tragic it is. Mm-hmm. But if we, you know, if that, so if that's a sticking point for the pro-life movement, and I think it is, mm-hmm. if, if we are working towards a world where we've, we've set up the conditions to, a, you know, the, the social pressures that force women into making these terrible decisions, whether, whether that's what marriage is, whether that's where our social safety net is how career development works in this political economy. You know, if we're working to sort of reduce both of those, like, you know, w- reduce the social pressures around that and also work for legal protection, is that a pro-life movement you could get behind? Or is that a type of project that you could g- get behind on a political level? Hmm. I don't think so on a political level, but I would say that it's interesting what you're saying. I certainly know that people think that life, many people and Catholics in particular believe that life begins at conception. And so you might say that, um, as you're saying, in, a, in an actual human life that's out and about, the sooner it's cut short, the earlier it's cut short, the more tragic it is. But I think it's very different in abortion because you're talking about a baby whose neurological system is developing and, um, you know, a, a procedure during which the fertilized egg wouldn't really have that we know of any sensory experience of this and versus one that would have, I think, a profound experience of it. But I'll tell you what, to me is the untold story of abortion that I got so many letters about were people who were absolutely told they'd never regret it. And I remember one guy in particular, he's British, and he said he and his girlfriend, they'd done it. They'd never thought twice about it. They thought. And then about 10 years later, she got really drunk, drunk enough that something was came out of her, which was this profound sorrow. And he said that he kind of went a couple of years without having it. And then he's been hit and still is hit by the deepest kind of regret and sorrow And, you know, there's this absolutely adamant desire to pump out statistics and surveys and research that says it's extremely rare to regret an abortion. And I don't think that's right. If I looked at kind of the scope of these letters and and the range of the ages of the people, I think that um, we are doing a grave disservice to these young people to not say, we need to let you know about this, you know, as you're making your decision, you need to uh, have this information or would you like this information? But I'm very against forcing a woman to have a sonogram beforehand. I'm very against the state, very against the state being able to force an intrusive procedure on a woman to force her to feel guilty but I think it would be uh, very much okay to say, you know, we have some information about what can happen afterwards, you know, a month, a year, 10 years down the road. Would you like that to be shared with you? We could give you a sonogram. Would that be useful to you? I think all of these things will be helpful. And I think that let's not let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Let's look at the fact that these numbers keep going down. You know, there are fewer and fewer and fewer women having abortions. And the more that we can understand one another, you know, it's what that's what the problem with the country is nobody wants to understand the other side, you know. And I think that 
the more whatever side we're on, the more we can really seek to understand what the opposition believes, maybe we can all soften a bit to one another and not be daggers drawn. Yeah. Yeah. Of all the polarizing topics uh, in the United States, this might be one of the hardest to talk about. So we really appreciate you coming on. (laughs) And I will say what I love about Catholicism on this issue is that it's against abortion and against the death penalty. And I think it's the only group of people that I know that are saying all lives have value. They're saying this newly fertilized egg to us has value. And this person who may have committed the most grievous kind of crimes imaginable and may have no interest in being forgiven for them, that his life also has value. So that's just another reason I respect Catholicism. We can agree on that. (laughs) Okay, good. We do have one final question for you. Uh, on Catholicism. Okay. <laughs> so I've certainly, as I've revealed, I'm hardly an expert. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, we're going to give you the expert's wand here mm-hmm. and ask if you could canonize one person, mm. living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh my gosh, what a great question. Well, I don't think that Martin Luther King has been canonized, and obviously he's not Catholic. That's all right. He but, has not been canonized, and and that was part of the question, was Catholic or not. Yeah, so if anybody, you know, he lived his, he lived his faith, he made decisions based on faith, he was a flawed man, like we're all flawed people, but he lived just, he was the last person in America to say, maybe we could do all of this a different way. And who's do you get? And you mentioned it fiction. What people from fiction are there? Have there oh, been there any? have been uh, the who's the Weasley mom? Molly Weasley. Molly Weasley. Uh, character yeah. from Dumbo. I forget oh. which one. But the Weasley mom was mean. No. Wasn't she the mean oh no no no. She's she the, the nice saintly mom. mom. She's definitely yeah. the she's nice the one with one. all okay, the kids okay. and keeping up a household. Yes, always okay, frazzled. Okay. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. It's all kind of, I'm too old for all this, but it was in my house a lot when my boys were growing up. Oh yes. That's a person who should definitely be a literary person who should be canonized. (laughs) Awesome. Well, all right, you guys, thank you for having me on. Yeah. I wish I could give a better defense of either side, but I just can't. I just can't. Humanity being what it is and suffering and sorrow being what they are and Babies, delicious babies being what they are. We just had a baby born in my family, my niece. And oh, congratulations. Just, thank you. Yeah. And you just look at that little baby, you know, kind of kicking his legs and you go, oh boy, it's a big issue. But yeah. I think conversations like this are the best thing to do is to just keep moving it forward with open conversation where there's no, nobody's going to yell at the other person for, for their belief. Amen to that. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on, Kaylin. You bet. You guys carry on. All right. Okay. Yeah. Bye bye. Unless, unless there's anything you want to plug, Kaylin. No, I'm a plug free rider. <laughs> I will never be at that point, so I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, goodness. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So we want to shout out some new supporters of our Patreon page, which, again, helps keep the show going. So we want to say thank you so much to Kathleen DeCharo, Michael Schmidt, Karen Gandy, and Katie Arts. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We we, we can't do it without you. Yes. Uh, we also want to plug a new Lenten resource from America Media. We have two new podcast series starting next week. So Ash Wednesday is February uh, 17th, coming right up. So if you are looking for ways to deepen your prayer over the Lenten season, you definitely want to subscribe to The Word and Imagine. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about whether we really need to give something up for Lent this year because, uh, well, I don't need to tell you why, because <laughs> everything has sucked. Um, but certainly don't give up Jesuitical 
for Lent and maybe think about adding a couple podcasts uh, to your routine this season. Yes. And the great thing about the word and imagine is you will hear some familiar voices from America media. So I personally have written a couple of scriptural reflections. So as our former guest and friend, Father James Martin. Um, So it's really an opportunity to get a a more personal look at the scriptures. Um, You know, I'm not, I'm not a professional, but I'm, I, I read the Bible like, like you do and, try to try to make sense of it and apply it to my own life. So if that's something you're interested in doing this Lent, definitely check out The Word, which will come out every other day, and Imagine, which comes out on Fridays this Lent. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I have, it's, you know, Really tough. We, we, we talk about, you, for, for the show, it's really got to fit into a consolation or desolation, but sometimes mm-hmm. it just isn't that easy. Um, so I'll just preface it with that. But I've been noticing this thing happening in my prayer life where I'm really focusing on the issue of uh, control and surrender. And I think the pandemic has spurred a lot of that. Like I, there's so much going on and so much of it seems out of my control. Um and the, I think what I've been doing is also projecting that onto God. Like, it's also out of God's control. This past week was a tough one for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, my grandfather uh, was battling COVID for um, a little over uh, 10 days. Um, he's he's doing better now, thank God. Um, but that was happening, like, right around the same time that my the anniversary of my grandmother's passing was coming up. Um, so, really, just kind of just felt like a hard and sort of like reliving some 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 trauma and grief um in in ways that i couldn't control or didn't know what to do with um feeling very stuck here and throughout the week i'd been like sort of anytime i would think about this or think about praying about this the thing i would hear is what do you want me to do about it which obviously is not the voice of of god um but it's not as easy as looking you know the devil on your shoulder and just turning around and seeing you know what the voice of God has to say. Uh, but I was on a walk and I, I heard this like shift in tone very clearly. That was not, well, what do you want me to do about it to what do you want me to do about it? And that just sort of allowed me to sort of open up a little bit in conversation with God. And it, 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 it and it doesn't necessarily change the outcome, right? Like that's not what prayer is necessarily for, but it, it does what does change is this is a feeling of calm that that comes even if just for a moment where whereas before you know this what do you want me to do about it is just constant anxiety and fear and 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 scared and being afraid um so that was my i I think that moment of consolation was being able to just like hear that um shift in tone was was my consolation this week yeah i think one of the parts of uh Jim Martin's book that we talked about last week um, that resonated most with me was on petitionary prayer and how like, I don't know, it can feel childish or like selfish or like, I don't know, like magical thinking to ask for these things. And, but that's, that's not actually what petitionary prayer is and that we're invited to, you know, put those questions to God and those requests and those longings. Um, so I'm glad you're hearing the voice of God more than the evil spirit now. Yeah. Thank God. What do you got this week? Uh, I have a consolation, uh, related very much to last week's desolation. So last week on the show, I talked about this kind of like heavy weight I've been carrying about feeling, uh, like I have failed to live up to my duties and, uh, as a, as the chair of the adult faith formation at my parish. Um, and so I put that all out there and I, you know, I didn't do it with this in mind, but turns out two, two members of that committee listened to Jesuitical and they emailed me just the most like gracious emails that I could have, couldn't have imagined just, you know, like saying that, like, (laughs) they they see where i am we're all in the same boat right now like we we don't we're not sitting here thinking about how much you have failed us like that's we have other bigger problems (laughs) Um, how selfish of you to even (laughs) consider (laughs) and i just can't tell you like how much how grateful i was to to have that um to like have 
that honesty or I don't know. I like used the word reconciliation when I was talking to Father Sundrup. And then I was like, yeah, no, I guess it's not really reconciliation. And then he was like, what? Why not? And I was like, well, they didn't really like get to like tell me what I did wrong. And like and he was like, well, that would be like retribution. What What weren't? <laughs> well, you're getting your R's confused. Like you you were restored to right relationship with the people on your committee. And that is that is a that's a good thing. That is what reconciliation is. And there's God working in that. Um, so, yeah. So, and, and I think what was helpful for me to realize was that it came from me, like from a position where I thought it was, it was desolation. I thought I was by admitting defeat that not, you know, nothing good would come of that. And again, as father <laughs> Sundrep reminded me, have you, have you read the gospels? <laughs> um, lots of good things come from apparent defeat. So <laughs> Very true. it's a good little, little mini parable in my life this week. <laughs> well, that's great. I, it's, it's, if, if it's a little bit alarming to consider like that your, that your fellow committee members are listening to the show. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's like, Oh, you guys weren't supposed to hear that. <laughs> But I'm glad they did, and I'm glad they were merciful yeah. with you. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, thank you all for thank you all for listening to our our, our various problems and, and ways that we've yeah. wronged you at the end of the show. Um, go ahead and get us out of here before we rattle off more all of right. those ways. <laughs> Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.